and smoke And the booze, they don't treat me like they did back then Little white pills we all took To forget where we'd been Welcome to Peak Curiosity. This is Abigail Carlson. Today I have Katie Edwards, or as known by most people around here, just Katie Howard. She found herself in the hospital with alcohol poisoning last March, and so I just wanted to ask her about her journey through and overcoming the addiction. So I know that this will be really encouraging because everybody knows somebody who is struggling. Hopefully this will help you understand what they're going through and how you can approach them better. were very close growing up. I would always describe your parents as my second parents and your brothers were basically siblings to me. And I actually don't know that much about you because you're old enough that we didn't <laughs> interact that much, but you and my sister were pretty good friends from what I remember. So we grew up in the same town, had a very similar upbringing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. First of all, you know, I like, I think it's so funny because you probably think of me, like I think of your siblings, older siblings. I always oh, yeah. didn't want to be, I either wanted to be an only child <laughs> or, or I wanted to have a bunch of older siblings. So, you know, it was super, I always like worshiped them from afar. Like when I saw your sister drawing or, mm. you know, it was just, it was so, you know, I do kind of feel like I had a second family. I was over there enough. I should have had a chore chart. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Really silly one to start. What's your favorite animal? Oh gosh. I would say I have to say a Bernadoodle or a Labradoodle. I am a doodle person. So Bernadoodles are like Bernies and a poodle and they're huge. These dogs are like labradoodles on steroids and I just want one to tackle me and love me and cuddle me. Like I wouldn't cuddle it, it would cuddle me. <laughs> that's the kind of dog I want. Oh, um, my husband says no, but, um, and then I honestly, my, my daughter, my stepdaughter has been really into like wild animals and I, like, I love um, white leopards, snow leopards. I think they're so pretty. They are very pretty indeed. What's your favorite <laughs> article of clothing? Anything black, um, okay. for sure. I'm all about, I'm all, it reminds me of Audrey Hepburn and my grandma, so I'm mostly a black closet. Um, I would say 
um, my yoga pants. <laughs> and, and right now, like everything's been hard, but the redeeming factor is that I can sit in my yoga pants and have a dress shirt on top. No one knows. And I mean, that's my, that's my uniform. <laughs> yeah. I've done that a couple times with a couple interviews, put on a button up shirt or something and got pajamas on the bottom. It's wonderful. No one knows. Yep. <laughs> Well, they do. But we all know that everyone else is doing the same thing. Let's be honest. Exactly. Yeah. So you're the oldest of four. And Mm -hmm. how much of a spread is there between you and the youngest? So Johnny and I are eight years apart. Oh, wow. You guys are close. I did not realize you guys were so crammed together. Yeah. Yeah. Gracie and I are two and a half GW, I think we're six, and then Johnny and I are eight. So, you know, back when I was eight, it seems like a huge difference, you know, because he was he was a baby. I remember, I hope he listens to this, changing his diapers and, you know, <laughs> telling him stories in bed and getting him out of his crib. And, um, you know, I remember Grace, your sister, she used to love reading Johnny Dr. Seuss books because you refused to sit still enough <laughs> long enough for her to read you a Dr. Seuss book. And so she was like, when she came over, we'd get so mad because we wanted to play with her, but she wanted to read Johnny Dr. Seuss books. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I don't know if you remember that. I don't, but you know, me and Grace really did not get along until she got married and left because she was such a girly girl and yeah. I was such a tomboy. And like you said, I would never sit still. I didn't want to listen to a stupid Dr. Seuss book which I think is silly now because I could think of nothing more fun, but that is really funny. <sighs> uh, you know, I, I totally resonate with that. And so like I have hair extensions and I am like not afraid to shout that out loud because so I grew up thinking I was a tomboy and everything too. And like to this day, I won't wear pink. I don't like, I have very little pink. I don't wear a lot of floral prints. And so having long hair and painting my nails, like that's my way of expressing my femininity. Like, I think everyone does it in a different way. And, you know, like my sister and I are so, so different, but I think that you get to a point in age where like you respect the differences and you know, that's, you know, that's something you need. And it really almost kind of helps you bond, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I refuse to paint my nails. Um, (laughs) And I actually have short hair. I have a pixie cut. But like, for me, painting my nails, I've done it a couple times just to see. And I actually, it feels immoral to me. Like, it's repugnant. Like, this is absolutely not me. Get it off. I feel like a fake. This is, this is wrong. Take it off of me right now. Maybe that's how you feel in pink. Yeah. That's how I feel in floral. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm a sandwich board or something like, like too much of a, like neon signs pointing at me. I can't do it. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. How was your home environment? Like, was it happy or how was it? How was it growing up? (laughs) It was, it was really happy. Um, you know, I think, I think having a big family was, was awesome. It, you know, we have a step, I have a stepdaughter who she's the only child and it's, I know times have changed and it's so, it's so hard to entertain yourself through books now and, you know, and 
that's definitely something we could do better at from a parenting perspective. But I just remember reading all the time. You know, I didn't have a cell phone. I remember reading. I remember growing. That's where my love of personal development came from. Like we were read all the time. You know, we would hide and read so that we, you know, didn't get found to do a chore. But, you know, also just there being four of us, we we made so many good memories together. Yes, there's typical sibling things. But when I look back, I have so many, so many good memories. I think, you know, it was interesting too, and you could probably relate to this, your family having a home business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything was kind of all in one place, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and there was always activity going on. And uh, in fact, to the point that when I went to college and started trying to study, I had to always have background noise because I couldn't handle quiet. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't used to that. So I would say, you know, super safe. We laughed all the time. You know, humor was one thing that my family, you know, this, (laughs) we're never short of. Sometimes we're humorous when we shouldn't be. I I always tend to crack a joke in like the perfectly inopportune moment, but yeah, I, I have a lot of good memories. One thing that I always appreciated about your family is you all were really affectionate with one another. And in my upbringing, we all are kind of weird about affection. And it's funny, we're trying to all grow out of it. But you guys, like, were really close and you'd, you know, say I love you and and often. And I always appreciated that as a kid. You know, I know that my dad, um, my grandpa would never say I love you to him. I think both my parents came from families where they wanted someone to hug them and they wanted someone to tell them that they loved them and, you know, speak that. And I think it's a great example of, you know, that generational, we tend to bring patterns with us and how important it is to say, instead of, oh, this happened to me, this is what our family does, say, I needed this for now on. It's, it, it starts with me. I'm going to start doing that. And I think that's what they did with us because I grew up not knowing that there was any different. Honestly, I was very blessed in that way. Like, you know, I had a dad who would, who would hold me and, and, and a mom who would, you know, they always told us, you know, they loved us. And that's something that I thought everyone had until I went out into the world and, you know, based on either relationships I had or friendships and saw that wasn't the case. And it's been something that I've actually had to be patient with my significant other, whoever that's been in my life, because I'm like, I sound so needy. It's like, why won't you tell me you love me? Why won't you hold me? Yeah. (laughs) You know, I just sound so, so needy, but you know, those are, that's how I feel loved. Honestly, words of affirmation and physical affection, like the handholding, the, you know, and I love that to this day on vacations, like I can go up to Johnny or GW and just give them a big hug and tell them I love them. And, and that's okay. And so I think cultivating that in your family is so, so important. I agree. You are 31 ish. Yes. 31 ish. I'll be 32 next month. Okay. And so a couple years ago, or was it just last year that you ended up in the hospital for alcohol poisoning? So the final time I was in the hospital for alcohol poisoning was March of 2019. Yeah. So last, last year. So I want to ask some questions to get up to the events that led to this. And my first question is, 
did you have an addictive type personality? Did you have, like when you were little, were you really obsessive, OCD, maybe de easily depressed or anxious? Yeah, you know, that's a fantastic question, Abigail. Anxiety, I started having panic attacks when I was eight years old. And I do, like looking back, I think it was tied to my mom having a difficult birth with my youngest brother. And so knowing it was my first experience of realizing that I could lose someone really, really important to me. And it just kind of shattered my world. That's always been my worst fear. And so I started having anxiety attacks really, really young you know, like lying on the floor and shaking panic attacks. And no, I didn't know those existed. No one, I had never seen anyone have a panic attack, you know? I, and so I really think it stemmed from that fear of loss. And to answer your, do I have an addictive personality question? You can pull anybody in my family. <laughs> yeah, I've always, there's different kinds of addiction personality. And mine is why have one when I can have 20? Not, why can I have one can, when I can have two? Why can I have one when I can have 20? You know, and I remember growing up constantly making myself sick on food. That was a constant thing for me. I didn't eat till I was full or I didn't eat till I had just enough. I ate till I ate too much. And I think the same, even looking back on like playing the piano, like I was obsessive about that too. I remember sitting there and going, okay, why do an hour and a half of practice when I can do two hours? Why do two when I can do two and a half hours? And I remember getting up to five or six hours. I didn't need to do that. No one asked me to do that. But I remember always wanting to push a little bit more, a little bit more. And that translated into drinking. I There was never a time... And I didn't start drinking until I was 26. You know, I had a glass of wine on my 21st birthday. So there, I, I didn't start really drinking until I was 26, but there was a never in moment in time. And this is insane to me because this is how normal people think that I would say, oh, that's probably enough. I never, ever thought that. I always would go till it was too far. And so, you know, I'm not sure why, why I don't have a stop button. My stop button is, you know, something I'm learning, but growing up, I don't, I don't really think I had one. That is really interesting. I've, I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody who has described quite that. I've heard of this in relationship to alcoholism. <laughs> is, yeah. As far as once I start, I can't stop, but I haven't heard it expand to so many different aspects. Yeah. And I think that's why it's super important now that I'm sober. I, you know, the biggest issue for me is balance. It is so easy for me to find something to latch onto that I put my identity into. And all of a sudden Katie's way over here and she's burnt out. When I, when I did go to rehab, you know, my mom expressed concern that I had a stress addiction too. And she was completely right. I had gotten so addicted to stress, so addicted to working the 50, 60 hour week that that was the only option for me. And so, yeah, I think it's self-reflection is so important because um, I never realized this till I looked back and I saw all the pieces fit together. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Growing up, you, you mentioned your little brother almost dying, which could be considered a traumatic event. Did you have any like big T traumas or just maybe a few little T traumas that kind of influenced and encouraged the anxiety? 
like I said, you know, we had a really pretty smooth family life. And the only traumas I had at growing up was losing people that were really important to me. And usually in a very sudden manner. I think to this day, one of the hardest was my grandma, you know, passing away the day before Christmas or two days before Christmas um, when I was 13. First of all, I felt like at that time, you know, as a young teenager, I felt like she was the only person that understood me. And she and I were so similar. And I just kind of latched on to that. Like, I truly thought of her as my best friend. And so when I lost her, like to this day, I, I, I cry over that. That was traumatic in the way of I learned loss. I can't plan for loss. It's going to happen suddenly and I'm not going to be ready for it. And so it, you know, I started this pattern where I really tried to started preparing for the worst all the time. And it really made me a little bundle of anxiety all the time. And I think it led to a lot of even physical like stomach problems. But I remember reminding my dad to lock the door every night. I would, that was part of our good night. Good night. Love you. See you in the morning. Don't forget to lock the door. You know, and I'm, I'm 13. I'm 14. I, why, why am I worried about my dad locking the door? He's my dad. He's going to lock the door. Right. Things like that. I would remind people to put their seatbelts on. I would obsessively worry until someone texted me that they got home safe. Um, because I, it's like, I've always been waiting for the phone call. So I think very much so I have been waiting for the shoe to drop my whole life. And it has taken like a complete surrender to knowing that everything that happens is supposed to happen. You know, everyone's trauma, even if it's a little T is a big T to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. So I'm not a chronically anxious person, but I've definitely learned to recognize my physical symptoms of anxiety, Mm -hmm. which is I have a hard time breathing. And just you describing your thought process was, I was noticing that I was having a hard time breathing. I can only imagine you actually living it, living it. That sounds (laughs) miserable. It's been fascinating. One of the number one things that has helped my anxiety is learning about it scientifically because it has taken the bigness and the special out of it. And all the shame. This is what, right. This is what my body's doing. It's a normal human response. It's fight or flight. And here's, oh, you know, that's a, that's a thought. It's okay. I'm going to accept this thought, let it pass. And you know, I'm going to breathe. And, you know, my dad always tried to get me to breathe when I had panic attacks and I never got it. And getting that oxygen into your body, there's just very, I have done so much research on anxiety because I did not want to have my, I literally, I was afraid that I was going to be the little old lady who couldn't go to the store. And so I have worked so, you know, I've worked really hard on my panic attacks, my anxiety, and that includes getting medical help. You know, there's a lot of stigma around medication. I think that if you need to establish a safety baseline, that that is super important to do. I think that it's important not to rely on medication or, you know, and that it has its proper place. But that has been a huge part of my anxiety toolkit. There's not one thing. There's many things, you know, and I like thinking of it as a toolkit. It takes all the tools. (laughs) (laughs) Would you say the number one thing is breathing or how do you regulate? What's your first go-to to to regulate? Um, The number one thing for me 
is when that thought comes is not pushing it away, not being afraid of it, not being afraid that I'm having it, not being afraid of the fear, like fear of the fear and going, okay, I have this thought. And instead of saying I am like, that's very important. What I say to myself, right? If I'm like, Oh, I am so anxious right now. I am so afraid. If you can change your wording, your brain will literally do something different. If you say, Oh, I am having this thought of anxiety right now. I am having this thought fear of loss. That's a real fear. Like I, I get it. But, and then, and then going into, but here's what I know to be true. And you can't do that. Here's what I know to be true part until you acknowledge what's going on. And, you know, is it true that my parents might have a wreck on the way home? It, it could be true. Do I know it to be true? Well, no. And then who would I be without this thought? Well, I would, I would be thinking about all the good memories we had while they were here, you know? So speaking to myself is really important. And then while I'm doing that, like, I don't know if you know, box breathing in, which is um, breathe in for hold for out for hold for there's so many different breathing techniques, finding the one that's right for you. And then, you know, I, I wanted the first, the first answer to be prayer, but it really helps me to get to a point of regulation, calming my physical state down and then turning upwards and having a prayer and going through the process. But I find what happens is when I start praying, I to my, my body's already up to a 10 Mm -hmm. and you know, and I, you've got to calm your nervous system down. Right. And I do believe that God gives us those physical tools to, to, to help ourselves. And there's a really great book. It is a little bit like, I wouldn't, I don't know if it's new agey and people can read it and take it for what it's worth. It has really helped me from a logical perspective and it's called loving what is by Byron Katie. She's a little bit more new age and um, you know, I can read it from a Christian perspective and, and make it work for me. But as far as the logic goes in that book, she goes through that. Well, what's true? What's really true? Who would I be without this thought? What is this thought making me do? Um, am I willing to let this thought go away? And that has helped me like even getting on a, a plane, you know, things that I used to have to drink over, being able to calm myself down. And, you know, I don't want to be stuck in my fear the rest of my life. I bigger things to do with my time. I want to live my life fully and I don't want to look back you know, on my deathbed and go, I lived a life full of anxiety. I didn't live. I, you know, I, I protected myself. And so, you know, these are really basic tools to help, but I I would say number one, acknowledging the thought and saying, okay, you're okay, but you're not me. And then kind of logic that thought breathing and then prayer, you know, and, and I think the cool thing about doing it in that order is when you end with prayer, you're setting your yourself up for the next time and, you know, aligning your will with the Lord's. And I feel like over time, it does get better. If you, if you follow that order, you know, regulating and then resting in the promises, I think it does get better over time. Yeah. I have noticed for myself, it is incredibly important to just actually name the emotion that I'm having. If I actually stop and and I listen to what my body is telling me, I've learned that a horrible feeling in my stomach is anger. I've learned Mm. that uh, tightening my fist is anger. I've learned that having a hard time breathing is anxiety. And I've learned that 
my limbs literally being heavy is depression. Like it's actually literally hard to move. And so when I actually stop and I think, what am I feeling and what is it? And then I can say, okay, if that's what it is, I know the steps to relieve the symptoms. So it's really I love important that. just the world to name needs it. Impacts. Yeah, the world needs impacts like you. Like a lot of people just go, 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 and they can't name it. And so for you to be able to even like literally feel it in your body, I think that's so, I think that's so cool and so powerful. Yeah. Well, it took therapy to learn, learn those things. <laughs> like the first day she said, what are you feeling? And then where are you feeling it? And I was like, oh, oh, I see. So you said that you didn't start drinking until you were 26. And yeah, was there a first time where you fought? felt a buzz and then there was no looking back or was it a slow build? I remember having a drink or I was really health conscious too. And so I knew like gluten messed with my stomach and it, I just never drinking was never important to me. Food was really important to me, but, but you know, (laughs) drinking wasn't really a thing. And then, you know, I'm trying to really remember, I think what really started happening is, you know, I got a job and start, and I made friends with people who were binge drinkers and, mm. you know, we, we would go out after work and I didn't have an education on what normal drinking looked like. I just knew alcohol was scary growing up mm. and then going out for a real drink or two and going, I don't know what's scary about this. This is awesome. You know, it's taken, it's taken my feelings away. It's doing these things, like all the reasons it's addictive. Right. Mm -hmm. But the sad thing was I was with binge drinkers who could turn it off and didn't have an Mm -hmm. addiction. And, and I didn't know at the time that that wasn't something that I could do, but it also happened at a time in my life where I wasn't getting attention at home Mm-hmm. and home was kind of a, a dark, sad place for me. And, and you were married at this time? I, I was. It was towards the end of my first marriage, yeah. Um, well, it was probably towards the, to, towards the middle three quarters end of my marriage, and, you know, I have compassion for this, this old Katie, but at the same time, you know, it's sad because I got attention for the amount I could drink, and I liked the attention. <sighs> people were paying attention to me and you know, I was hearing those words of affirmation. Oh, wow. Like she can drink more than us. And and the competitive side in me, I was like, yeah, like I've, (laughs) you want to see how much more I can drink. Honestly, that's exactly how I thought, you know, I thought I had everybody beat. I loved to out drink people and I had, I really had no idea what I was doing and Mm. part of me wishes I would have known. And part of me is so grateful for my story that I know I needed everything that it took to get me here. But yeah, I think that first of all, like being around people, I think maybe, you know, I don't know. I really don't know that if I would have made friends who like sipped champagne, if I would have been a champagne sipper my whole life, (laughs) knowing me, I don't think so. I think I would have taken a bottle home, but (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think that friend group was very instrumental. How long would you say before it started to become a a true habit? You know, I talk about rehab like it's no big deal. Rehab's like a huge deal and there's so much stigma around it. It was also the best thing that I would say ever happened to me in my whole life. Um, But one thing they have you do is write down your progression. And it's really, really eye-opening. You know, and I think at the beginning, I would go out with a friend for 
brunch and have a couple mimosas. And then she and I started getting our own carafe of mimosa, you know, and we could polish off, you know, one ourselves. And then I started drinking at night and I would have, you know, when I found whiskey, it was over for me. <laughs> yeah, I, you I know, when you're dealing with 10% girl. champagne, you're like, what it, I, you have to drink so much to do anything. When you start getting into well, that 60, 70, 80. Yeah, unless you're stuff. drinking bottles. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, and honestly, I didn't know. I didn't know. I guess I started sort of started knowing like the alcohol contents of things because once I got to the point where it wasn't enough, I started upgrading to higher proofs, mm. you know, on purpose to yeah. get that, that faster. Um, but I would say that it really didn't start becoming a problem until probably my 27th birthday. I think there was a year of drinking in there that I remember was fun. You know, we would go to the pool and drink cocktails. Like it was, it was, it was fun. It was a lot, but I could still get up. I could still, you know, I didn't have shakes. I didn't have a lot of the consequences yet. I think it was, I remember distinctly my 27th birthday. And just after that needing more and more. Mm. I wanted to ask what your drink of choice was. It sounds like it's whiskey. Yeah, yeah. An old fashioned, a double old fashioned. I never did one. It was always a double old fashioned. And mm. um, well, any any drink, actually, you know, I mean, so I would say that if I was sipping, if I was being normal, <laughs> um, but any, you know, towards the end, I was just kind of it, it, it really just is so sad and so dark. You'll drink, you'll drink anything. And when I, you know, it's truly true when I say I needed it more and more, I didn't want it more and more necessarily. There were so many times that I wanted to stop drinking so bad, but my withdrawal symptoms would get so bad that, and I didn't want anyone to know. So, you know, it's, I kind of IV dripped myself. It was kind of like I stuck an IV in my arm. What are the withdrawal symptoms? Everyone is different. There's, there's basic withdrawal symptoms. So, so a hangover is very, very mild withdrawal symptoms. And I mean, you can, I took a drugs and behavior course and, and it was fascinating that, you know, those basic withdrawal symptoms are essentially your body doing the opposite of what it did when it was on its high or whatever from the use of alcohol. Mm. It has opposite effects is the scientific way it happens. And so everyone, you know, the nausea, the headache, the, ugh, you know, that's just basic mild withdrawal symptoms. An example of a little bit stronger ones is having the shakes, having shaky hands, more nausea, really strong withdrawal symptoms. You can start experiencing delirium can feel like there's bugs crawling on your skin. You can feel like have a hard time focusing myself and I would see spots a lot. And then like I would throw up blood that was towards the, you know, the more the alcohol poisoning side. Everyone has the different amounts of those, but, but those are kind of the typical ones. Okay. And uh, you div- got divorced and did that really increase the the velocity of the addiction yeah it did you know what i found is alcohol was a band-aid for me so for example you know when i got sober i was with my brother and he was like is it okay if i have a beer and i said well yeah it is i said you drink a beer 
I use. And one of the coolest things about rehab was learning that I am like any other addict, you know, alcoholics are not a glorified drug user. <laughs> like it, it's just the same as me being a heroin user or, or whatever, you know, addiction is addiction. And I think that that's really freeing too, to know. Um, it's been eye-opening. It's given me a much bigger heart and a lot of compassion for a people group that, you know, before I maybe wouldn't have talked to, but you know, I'm a user, so I don't drink alcohol. I use alcohol to numb me and everyone has something. I truly believe people don't just drink to drink alcoholics. I would say normal people drink to drink. And I don't understand why someone cannot finish a glass of wine you know, I had a couple dates after my divorce where someone would go use the bathroom and I was, I was like, are you going to drink that? I'll drink it. I'll drink it. Um, but, you know, I think that you, you don't just drink too much to drink too much. I think that you're, you, you use it for something. And I was using alcohol as the bandaid that numbed me out because there was pain that I didn't know necessarily how to deal with inward, like, um, pain from myself, pain from others. And the best way I knew to fix it was, you know, and I've got to tell you, I was trying other things too. Like I was going to a therapist, I was, um, trying to get fit, but, and this is for everybody. If you have an Achilles heel, if you have something that you haven't surrendered, if you have something that is in charge of your life, all those other things you're doing will not work. You have to get to the bottom of what is going on in your soul, what is going on at the heart of everything, and you have to deal with whatever that ugly big monster is. Because if you don't, it will continue running your life. And I think we try to distract ourselves with diets, with pills, with too much service to the point that you're neglecting your family. Like it could look like anything, but until you deal with whatever that heart problem is, you know, the, the fixes aren't going to work. They are just going to keep getting worse. And that's, and that's essentially what I was doing with alcohol. Hmm. So you were fairly functional. Uh, you mentioned that you would be drunk driving daily and apparently holding down a job. And how are you able to do that? And how much were you drinking daily while still doing those things? Yeah, you know, that's been one of the hardest things mentally for me getting sober to be okay with was the fact that I was doing that. And at the time, you know, in my brain, it was always, well, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Like you're driving fine. Like it's, it's fine. It's no big deal. Like you're not, you're not a real drunk, you know? And those were the words that I was telling myself to make it okay. And so, you know, I would say I was, I would say I was above the legal drinking limit for two years. Um, I would drink probably 10, 15 shots in the morning juice just to get up and be able what? to work. Um, yeah. So, and if I didn't have alcohol at home and the liquor store wasn't open, I would go to the gas station and, and, and drink, you know, for whatever I could get boxes of wine, whatever it was, I would get enough alcohol in me to stop the shaking and stop the, oh, one of the symptoms I didn't mention is it, it's like pouring gasoline on your anxiety. I would have this crazy mm. shortness of breath. And so I would drink enough to get that all to calm down. And then I would literally take, I would take 
early lunches. I, I, I had my lunches timed to when the liquor store was open because I would buy enough alcohol to last me for a couple of days, but I did drink it all within a day. And so, you know, I was spending 50 to a hundred dollars on alcohol every single day. I, I, I drank myself to bankruptcy and I, that's something a lot of people don't know that I've kept kind of private, but I, I couldn't pay my rent. I had to borrow money for my rent. Um, and this is just like any other drug addict, you know, they can't pay their bills because they're, they're using that money for whatever their drug of choice is. I was doing the exact same thing with alcohol. I was borrowing money to pay rent so that I could drink. And I had a great job. I had a fantastic job and I had nothing to show for it. You know, I, I think I told you earlier, like I, when we weren't recording, I would drink up to probably half a gallon of alcohol every day, which is mind blowing. That's what most men, man alcoholics drink, you know? And so, I mean, it, by the grace of God, I'm still here. I really shouldn't be. It's, I am a walking miracle because I went to the, I, I would never stop until I got alcohol poisoning. And so everything always ended in every four months I'd be in the hospital and the doctor, we would do the same old thing. Hey, have you thought of getting help? Oh, I don't need help. Like stop talking to me so I can go home and drink. And that, that was about as exciting as my life got um, at that point. When you would end up in the hospital, how did you actually get there? Because I imagine that you're basically passed out. Did you have a roommate or did you have people checking on you that they would know that you needed medical attention? You know, I rarely passed out. You know, I was not a blackout drunk. The amount of alcohol my body could take to this day still kind of astounds me. Um, (laughs) I usually, I usually drove myself. Um, what? but they never would let me drive home. <laughs> I always had to have someone come get me and I, you know, look at them like they were crazy. Why, why would I need a, someone to drive me home? I don't have a problem, you know, and just, just fighting, fighting. And, and honestly down in the depths of my soul being so afraid because I knew that they were right. I knew there was something really big going on and I just couldn't handle accepting that. At what point were you able to see that you needed to get to the hospital? Usually at a point that people, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily know what the blood alcohol level contents are, but driving is a 0.08, right? You know, a mild case of alcohol poisoning can happen anytime after that. I was, I had a doctor say I was at a 0.2. I had a doctor say I was at a 0.3. I mean, very, very, very high levels of alcohol. So usually it was either I couldn't breathe. I had gotten to the point where my body couldn't stop shaking. I was convulsing. Or one time I'd been throwing up blood for a week and my roommates finally, they, they forced me to go to the hospital. They, they were like, you, you, you need help. And even then, you know, they were in there, they were like, oh my gosh, you're a point two. And I was like, yes, so what? you know, and, and it just shows that, you know, when you are in this spiral, like your mind, your mind can't grasp a lot. And that's why it's such a sad thing. And there's so many people out there that are so afraid to talk about this and they're so afraid. And, you know, what I would say is if you are questioning your relationship with alcohol, there's probably a chance, a really good chance that you may have a problem with alcohol. People who don't have a problem with alcohol don't think about whether they have a problem or not with it. So 
in your heart of hearts, if you sat there and go, I might drink too much, there's a good chance that you drink too much. And it is a, it can be a slow progression or it can be like this, but I think that that self-awareness as an adult is so important. You don't use things, right? You look at your values, you look at the things that are important to you and you make really important decisions from a place of love. And there was a point where, you know, even if I could have drank more, I could have sat back and gone, this is causing damage. This is hurting people. This, I am not, I'm not doing this out of love. Like I'm not doing this out of abundance. You know, I, I need to make some changes. Mm -hmm. I love this stuff. It's so, it's so good. It's so important. So, and I think it's, you know, I think that it's, it was so important for me to start sharing because I know if me as a homeschooled girl in a small town who didn't even have any alcohol around her growing up can get into something like this, anybody can. No one is exempt. So I think that it's so important, first of all, for people to feel comfortable talking about it. I think I would have gotten help sooner if it was less of a taboo, judgmental subject. Because I was so afraid of being judged that I did not want to talk about it. And I think, too, that people need to be aware. Alcohol is the, besides, it is one, I think, if it's not the most, it's the most addictive substance no, it's not the most addictive substance. I think that meth might be. I'm trying to remember my, my course. I think but, heroin um, and meth are pretty bad. I don't know which one is worse. I think meth is. Uh, meth is the most addictive, but alcohol has is one of the only drugs that you can die from withdrawal symptoms. And I'm not going to get into all the political and like, I, I don't touch marijuana. It's not, I, you know, it's, I, I live in recovery. It's not a part of using isn't a part of my life, but it, it's insane to me that alcohol is legal because of how dangerous it is. And, you know, I, God bless the people. I, you know, sometimes I struggle with a little bit of jealousy that, you know, someone I know could go brunch for reals, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, um, or, or be able to sip a glass of wine or, and not chug a glass of wine. And it, it doesn't belong in my life, but you know, it, it belongs in a lot of people's, but I will say that I truly believe that recovery is a special thing. And I think that if you can get to a point of radical responsibility and honesty in your life and admit that you have a problem and get help, there are miracles that have happened in my life since I got sober that would have never happened in my old life, even before alcohol. It has taken me on such a spiritual journey and an inside out transformation that I can say that I would not trade. I, you know, when I say that I'm a grateful alcoholic, I a hundred percent mean that. What is the biggest mistake a family member or a friend can do if they have an alcoholic, you know, person? You know, I think that's a really tricky subject. And I think it depends on the behavior of the alcoholic. 
Um, if you have an alcoholic inactive addiction in your family, you have to realize, or a friend, you have to realize that they are not thinking like a normal person. They are not, there, there is no sanity. And that's the hard thing because you cannot try to have a sane conversation with someone who is in active addiction. It doesn't work. But what you can do is keep speaking truth, keep speaking truth, keep speaking truth. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's so much easier if they have people around them, like uh, recovery groups have been so important for me, even when I wasn't ready to stop drinking, just being around those people and realizing that I was one of a lot of people helped me actually admit my problem and get some help. Um, because I knew if I wasn't an alcoholic, there was no hope left for me. At least alcoholics that I saw that were happy, they had a solution. And if I wasn't one of them, then I didn't know what I was. And I was pretty sure that I was going to be dead before I knew it. So um, I think I think having, um, as a family member or a friend, arming yourself with those tools, get in a recovery group, get in Al-Anon, which is um, a support group for family of alcoholics. You know, just as there's so much shame as an alcoholic, I think there's a lot of shame for the family of an alcoholic because it's something that they really don't understand. And there's a lot of freedom in talking about it and um, meeting like-minded people. So I know it's really hard for people to put themselves out there and it's such a private thing, I guess. But finding a support group, I think, is so important because you can't help the alcoholic unless you have the tools yourself. And unless you have healing yourself, if you're coming from a broken place because of what the alcoholic is doing to you, I think it's really hard to be able to help anybody. So I think putting the person that you can control, which is you first and going and getting that help and the tools you need is super, super important. Um, I think one of the number one mistakes you can make, and this is hard because I've even done this. I am in close relationship with other alcoholics in my life. And it's really, really hard not to emotionally react um, because it is such an, a fearful thing. It really is scary. Addiction is really scary. And what it turns person, a person into, that Jekyll Hyde type transformation can be really, really scary. You'll go, who, who is this person? What happened to my sister? What happened to my daughter? What happened to my friend? And so, um, I don't know. I think it's just super important to um, remember that they are not what they are going through. They are not, they are not the things that they're doing. And I would say telling them that you love them because at that point in their life, they do not feel lovable. They do not feel worthy. They, you know, there were points where I didn't feel worthy of sobriety. You know, I've already messed up too much. Why would I deserve a second chance? And so I think continuing to speak love into their life is so important. You have to realize there is nothing you can do. So you might as well send them a message of love instead of trying to fix them. And I think that's one of the hardest things that close loved ones have to accept. Um, so um, I, I guess those are the big things for me. And I shared this with you off record before we got started, but you know, I know that if my parents would have alienated me, um, I would not have involved them in my recovery process. And it was so important to them that they were there for me when I was ready. And so that was one of the biggest gifts that they could have given me was unconditional love. And 
I don't think there's any better picture of God's grace and what he's done for us than having someone who has lost everything, who isn't even acting like themselves and they are still loved and worthy just as they are. When I got sober, when I went to rehab, that absolutely blew my mind that I had lost everything. I had ruined everything. And I was just, I was just as lovable and worthy as I was when I had everything. And I don't think you understand grace until you, until you experience that. So I think that if you really realize that you can actually be blessed along the journey of helping that alcoholic family member or friend, because it is grace in action like nothing else. And so if you can have that mindset and really just and see it in that way and give it to the Lord with all you've got, I do think that there is a redemption story there. So Sorry, I got teary. <laughs> that's okay. I did a little bit too. Tell me about your come to Jesus moment, both li- literally and figuratively. That's exactly what it, what it was, you know, I was on a business trip in Kentucky and trying to act like I had it all together. And I had had a stint of sobriety for about a month and a half. I really wanted to pass an important test at work and my brain was not fully recovered yet. I had done so much damage. I failed the the test. And my first thought was, I'm, why did I get sober? I didn't get sober for the right reasons. I got sober because I knew my family needed me to. I knew I, you know, I got sober so I could pass a test. I got sober because I, that's what people do to, you know, get all the things. And, you know, I didn't do it for the right reason. And I went right back into my addiction and my, my body couldn't even handle as much alcohol as it could have before. Um, and that's why you hear of people being sober for 30 years, having one drink and dying because mm. your body has, your liver has a perfect memory. And when you drink again, it goes right back to its worst moment. So, hmm. um, and a lot of people, a lot of alcoholics don't even know that they don't get why they can't drink how they used to when they've had a stint of sobriety. So, you know, I was drinking again and I was at a hospital or I ended up in a hospital. I was at a hotel in Kentucky and I woke up and I had a presentation the next day, a big presentation that I knew that if I did everything perfect, like I was, it was going to be transformative for my career and I could not get out of bed. I was shaking so bad. And I thought, well, this is just anxiety. And I'd already found the liquor store and I pumped some stuff in me. I took a couple anxiety pills, which is just not safe anyways. And it kept getting worse. And then pretty soon I started convulsing. And then pretty soon I was drinking vodka and throwing it up at the same time. And I got on my knees, Abigail, and I said, God, I went too far. I know I went too far this time. Um, and it was nothing like I had felt before in every single alcohol poisoning in every single hospital visit. I knew that I was on death's door and I can't even explain the feeling. Like I knew, I knew I was there. I knew I had gone too far. I knew it was it. And I told God, I said, I know I went too far this time. I know you gave me chances and I know I blew it. 
And I said, I, I remember saying this on my knees in this hospital room. I said, I know I'm probably going to die, God, but if you decide to save me, I will go to rehab and do whatever it takes to be sober and help people. And I called my mom, said, mom, I need to go to the hospital and then I'm going to rehab. My poor mom. <laughs> my mom needs like all the flowers forever. <laughs> um, she gets this call for me in Kentucky, right? I called someone that I had met in AA and said, hey, she was the only woman I knew who drank like I did um, that I had ever met. And I said, hey, I went too far. Help me. And so it's super important if you have a loved one who's overdosed, you know, you hear things like NAA, like why, why do they have like a bottle of whiskey that they give them on the way to the hospital? You have to get alcohol in that person just from a, from a practical standpoint, they cannot withdraw without hospital supervision. They, they it is so dangerous. So I drank until I could get to the hospital. When I got to the hospital, I was starting to kind of seize up and convulse just a little bit. And then when they put me in the MRI machine, um, when I got out, I had a stroke. I couldn't talk for about 10 minutes. My whole body is like my whole body just shut down. And to this day, I still have really bad short-term memory problems from all this. I'm, I'm working. It, it gets better and better. And then I don't remember the next five days. I was in the hospital. They had me on all sorts of drugs. Um, I was in and out of it. My sister had been at a book convention. She flew or uh, drove over with my niece. My mom flew in and I remember them sitting there and I remember being a grumpy little bear. <laughs> I do remember that, but I also remember being so afraid. Like just because I had stopped drinking, I was such a raw, dark person still. And I remember my sister looking at me and going, what will it take for you to understand love? What will it take for you to understand unconditional love? And I've always remembered her asking me that. And that's the question I took with me to rehab. My mom wheeled me through the airport. I was still too weak to walk. That woman is an angel walking on earth. There were so many times she, she prayed for, she just prayed for me. And, and then my parents, I didn't even feel safe enough to stay out of rehab for a couple of days. So they drove me to rehab and I got my phone taken from me and it kind of was like jail in a, like a spiritual jail in a lot of ways. I learned a lot of tricks from the people who had been in jail there too, like about passing notes and, you know, how to get your hair due to look for, for a week. And, you know, um, it was the safest place for me. It, I finally felt safe and I knew that I had one chance to get this right. I knew that this was my one chance. And I told my counselor that, and I tell you, I went into her office. I sat down, I started telling her my story and she was like, honey, I'm going to stop you right there. You're telling me what you know. I want you to tell me what you don't know. She goes, otherwise we're not going to go anywhere with this. She goes, I got some bad news and some good news for you. Bad news is you're not special. And then she says, good news. You're not special there's hope for you too. And she took me on this journey of stripping away everything I believed and building everything back up from square one. And that's why I say that it was the best experience that happened to me. And then um, I actually, I did the thing that no one should ever do. And I met my husband in rehab. 
<laughs> we all were like, like Katie did you know. what? Katie did what? This seems I so know. dangerous. I know, I know. And it was so funny because he and I were both not like we've never broken the law. Well, besides driving when we shouldn't have, but we didn't get caught. Like we are these law abiding citizens and we broke the rules in rehab. You know, we, we talked to each other and there was just, you know, I, by the end of rehab, I knew he was going to be my husband. And it was so funny because I was like, I know that it's going to look like I'm jumping into a relationship and he's, so he's 16 years older than me mm-hmm. and such different life places and actually at different journeys in our sobriety. And it's all for a reason because he lived in Jackson, Wyoming. I lived in Boise, Idaho. There was never a way that we would have ever met in our lives if we had not both decided to surrender. And I think that is just a, such a beautiful picture of how redemptive life can be when you just give up the thing that you're, you know, that one thing that you're always like, oh, I'm so afraid of just giving that to the Lord. Cause like, what, what will he do with it? What, you know, this stuff's fine. And it's like, that's the thing that's holding you back from this incredible, incredible life. And so, so we are both in recovery and um, it's very much a big part of our life. And, you know, Abigail, you asked me about that come to Jesus moment. And, and I have to have it every single day. I didn't have it once. I still have to have it every single day and get myself right. How long, how do I word this grammatically correct? How long after you wake up, how long is it before you are thinking of alcohol? Is it still a thing that you will think of? Like, oh man, a drink would sure feel good right now. You know, that's a great question. And, you know, the answer is... I have to fill that space with something, right? You don't just have this big space that you've filled with something for years and then it just goes away. You have to fill that space with something. And so I fill it with, I try to pack it with as much good as I can. And the first thing that I've started doing is, you know, just like I had that glimpse of grace and worthiness, I have started when I wake up in the morning, not getting out of bed until I truly believe that I don't have to do anything today to be worthy of God's love and grace. And I do not get out of bed until I say that to myself and it's a prayer and I believe it. Otherwise I become the same person I was just without a drink. Just everyone's a to-do list, go, 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 roll over people while I'm at it, you know, stress, anxiety. And that's not the life I want to live. And so, you know, I do, I sit there and I say, do you believe that you were worthy of God's love just as you are waking up this morning without doing anything today. And, and knowing that just maybe even staying sober for that day is enough. And I think the expectations we put on ourselves are expectations God doesn't put on us. So getting my day starting right is super important. I would say on stressful days, you know, if you are, if you've heard of recovery groups, even like AA, people talk about the obsession being lifted. I've had a different story because I was so chemically dependent on it based on how much I drank. When I first got sober, my bones, like I remember crying because my bones hurt. I was craving so bad, like physically. And so that has been something that, you know, the, the motto, this too shall pass has, has been pass is so important for me um, because cravings will happen. Like something stressful will trigger me and I'll be like, I want to, it's not so much as I want to drink. It's I want to numb. I want to numb out. I want to numb out so bad right now from whatever this is, 
But as I stay sober, I'm finding that on the other side of those reasons that I numbed out, there's always a lesson. And when I was drinking, I never got to the good part. Like I never got to the good part where you learn the lesson. And so I would say that there are times when I don't necessarily want to drink because I know, you know, I've had doctors, I've had multiple doctors tell me if I drink again, either my heart will stop. I'll have a a stroke. I, if I drink again, I'm done. And so that would definitely be a death wish. And I don't want to die. You know, I don't, I, so that's a really easy reason for me to stay sober, but there's a lot of ways to use. And so I think keeping that straight uh, is super, super important for me so that I don't go down a different path and find something else to numb out with. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. (laughs) I honestly am having a hard time remembering what my question was, but it was all good. You know, and every person's different. Every person's different. Some people, you know, at five o'clock, that's when they always went to the liquor store. So five o'clock comes when they're sober and, oh, this is when I'm supposed to have a drink. And I think that the people that stay sober are the people that are okay with feeling uncomfortable. They're the people that will sit in the uncomfortable and go, this will pass. I'm supposed to be sober. You know, I have, I have eliminated the option of drinking in my life. Drinking no longer serves me. It is no longer a part of my life. I am not able to drink. And I think that the wording you tell yourself in recovery is really important. And I kind of have touched on that in my, you know, social media lately. Like my language is so important. I no longer am a person who drinks. Drinking has no place in my life you know, and those words have a lot of power and and I have to choose to believe them. So I would say that every person, everyone's recovery story is different, but that has been mine. I had never really been able to put myself in the position of an alcoholic until just recently I was listening to an episode of the Armchair Expert, which is hosted by Dak Shepard. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, yeah. I actually just stumbled upon him this week. So that's so funny you mentioned that. His podcast is wonderful. It's one of my most favorites. I've taken a lot of inspiration from him and how I do mine. He had been sober for 16 years and just relapsed this past summer. And he did an episode talking about it. Kristen Bell's husband, right? Yeah, Kristen Bell's husband. And he described the inner shame and the secrecy and just how he was hiding from his own thoughts in a way that I had never quite imagined. I had, I think I had imagined the addicts kind of were malicious in, in the way that they manipulate, in the way that they can manipulate people and, lie and gaslight I always thought man what terrible people but I had never considered that they're dealing with the battle within and they are really really struggling in their own shame and part of it is it's so physical just the the literal addiction part that's past the mental checkout is so strong and and you know If you've even ever tried to not eat a carb for a day, just imagine that I'm sure times 10,000, you know, it's physically miserable. So anyway, that was a lot of talking to say that I have just in the past week 
been able to put myself in those shoes. And I guess my question is, did you have a lot of that inner turmoil and shame or were you not even able to admit to yourself some of those things? Um, I would say both. And the way you described it is a sliver, I would say, of the darkness. It is, I think, the clo- I think addiction is the closest you can feel to hell on earth. And I, and I don't say that lightly. I remember times where I, it it was like hell on earth and I couldn't even wrap my mind around what was going on. To be honest with you, I didn't even understand what was happening within me, but I knew that I wasn't who I wanted to be. And I knew I was damaging things that were so precious to me and, and the pain of that and the embarrassment Um, You know, I think that to this day, one of my biggest, the biggest, the hardest things I've ever heard in my whole life was a family member telling me that they were embarrassed of me when I was drinking and their opinion, it probably means the most to me. And, and that shattered me to this day. It still shatters me that, that my, you know, I don't, I don't, I think that everybody, and this is something I've learned in recovery, everyone's doing the best that they can. Sometimes that blows my mind. (laughs) I'm like, really? They're doing the best they can? Like, come on. (laughs) But, but (laughs) I think that everyone is doing the best that they can. And, um, that, that inner world, I do not wish it on anybody. It's dark. It is, it's full of shame. It's full of guilt and it's hopeless. I felt absolutely hopeless. I couldn't fix it. Every day I drove home, I said, I'm not going to drink tonight. I'm not going to drink tonight. I ended up on a bar stool every single time. Mm. And so I started not even believing my own words. I started feeling like I even lied to myself. So you're right. There's manipulation, there's gaslighting, there's, you know, controlling there's, and, and I believe that the addict is doing it to themselves too. And so, yeah, the shame, the shame, the guilt, and like I said, it got to the point where I, I didn't feel worthy of not drinking. I believed that I, I deserved an alcoholic's death. And so I think it's important for people to know that side, because when you're trying to hide something, you're not going to share that with someone. You're not going to share, oh my gosh, I feel so much shame how I'm treating you right now. You just get angry. You get defensive. I remember being such a defensive person when I was drinking, I, I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about, you know, or I didn't say it that way. Like I didn't hurt you. You're fine. You know? And I came across, like, I just had this blatant disregard for the people who I loved the most. And that's still to this day, something that I am working through, um, that guilt and that shame for the choices I made when I was in addiction. Um, not necessarily to, you know, the dumb things I did to myself, but the things that I did to the people that I love the most. And I, I will tell you, I had, I had a sibling who stopped talking to me. I don't know if you know that. It was so hard for them to watch what I was doing to myself. And they got tired of hearing me promise that I was done. I was done. I was done. It's over. It's better. I'm fine. And their way of handling that pain was to just stop talking to me. And, you know, in their mind, I was just, I was a selfish human being all of a sudden, you know, I was selfish, selfish, selfish. And I was, I didn't realize it though. I think that addiction is incredibly selfish. 
I also think that sometimes it's until you get help, you don't have the tools to deal with it. And so that relationship, I've, I've had to work on building that trust back. I think that a couple of my siblings still kind of live in fear and that's okay. They have every right to, I scared them, (laughs) you know, and, and that's, and I think that the journey back is long and it's hard and you have to do the work and you have to do the work for a long time. You cause a lot of damage. And so it takes, you, you didn't, you didn't ruin everything in a day. And so it takes a lot to build that back up, but it's worth it. I will say that it's absolutely worth it. I think that's a great spot to close. like the office or parks and rec better oh my gosh you're gonna hate my answer i've never seen all of either of them i've seen bits and pieces of the office but my sister says parks and rec is really good so i would say my answer is friends (laughs) (laughs) fair enough fair enough uh genesis 1 through 11 this is (laughs) pre-abraham is this legend or history that's an interesting question. History. I, I think history for sure. I think, I think that's an important part of history. Okay. Do you think that there are aliens? I live with one. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, you know what? That's I, a month ago, two months ago, I would have said no, but I am just trying to really, open my mind. My husband is all about Area 52 and is convinced there's aliens. And I'm like, who am I? I am such a small part of creation. There's got to be so many things that I don't know about. So my answer is sure. Why not? (laughs) Okay. Here's my final one. Who or what inspires you to be your best self? You can start the Jeopardy music. Um, who or what inspires me to be my best self? Knowing that this is it. This is all I've got. This is the one life I have and I want it to be of service and to, I want someday to be able to meet God and him say, here's, here's the life I had planned for you. And, and this is what it was. Um, and I, I think that that is easier than we make it. It's just living in love and, and taking it a day at a time, um, and being of service to others. So, um, yeah, I think we've got this one life, like let's live it with all we, with all we have. I like that answer a lot. So that wraps up this interview. Thank you. And I really appreciate how open you are and, I know that this will help a lot of people because everybody knows somebody that's struggling. Well, thanks for doing this. Keep up the great work. I I know you're helping a lot of people, so keep it up. I sure hope so. It is good to see your face too. Next time you're in the Fruitland area, maybe we should go grab a drink. Well, not a drink, maybe a coffee. (laughs) Drink, any of the drinks, yeah. (laughs) There's all sorts of non-alcoholic options. So for what it's worth, 
I have listened to many podcasts that have recovering alcoholics. And in my opinion, they're the best people on the planet. I think uh-huh. they're Christian, atheist, it doesn't matter. They get grace and love more than Christians do. And you I know I have I have found that in AA. Like I can sit in a room with people who I would have never met in my normal life ever. And they have loved me more than other people I know. You know, it's it's crazy. Yeah. I think I think you guys have just actually you just found out how broken you are mm. and then you've actually found out that there's still grace and love for you and that is what helps you extend it to others and that's what christians are supposed to grasp unfortunately i just don't think that they've come face to face with their own evil i and i think there's so much bs in the name of religion out there um to be honest i think that you know, we complicate religion so much. And I, you know, it, Jesus made it so easy. He made it so easy. Like if you look at his time on earth, like his, his messages, children could grasp. And here we are trying to act important and say the right words and do the right things. And it just, we, you know, it's, we miss out on a lot, I think. Yeah. I think so too. So well, you, you have a, I, I feel like you've tapped into an understanding and an empathy that kind of gives you get to be part of that. And I think that's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Well, welcome. I have a feeling you're taking up like your whole night. No, that's okay. I have a feeling that we could talk for a long time. So we probably better just stop. Yes. Yes. Well, have a great night. Tell Jordan hi and um, keep me updated on everything. I will. Okay. Thanks, Abigail. Thank you. Bye. You got to slow down while you can still see the mile. Put on the brakes in the fast lane. Fast life